My name is Wes Butler, and I'm the director of single adult ministry here at Watermark. I've been uh, on staff in September. It'll be five years for me in this role, uh, which is just really fun. It's been such a, a great ride and a blessing uh, for me and my family. And uh, and during that time, uh, really what my probably my primary responsibility here at Watermark has been overseeing our single parent family ministry and our divorce uh, care ministry. There's other things that kind of tag along with that that I have the privilege of doing, but that is really, basically I'm told kind of every year as they review me, they go, hey, look, if you mess this up, we're done with you, you know, and so uh, fortunately, I guess I haven't messed it up too bad, and they keep me around, and uh, and so um, all that to say that probably the number one most repeated conversation that I have uh, as uh, the director of single adult ministry here is this conversation about divorce and remarriage. Uh, you know, folks coming in who have just gone through a divorce or, or maybe folks who have been divorced for, you know, a few years and uh, now they're starting to date again or, or maybe even engaged and, and we're having to have this conversation about, well, what does the Bible say about kind of my freedom to remarry or what does the Bible say about uh, divorce and how I res- should respond right now? And so, uh, you know, when Blake asked me to teach this class, I said, I think I can do that. Uh, I could probably do that in my sleep. Uh, hopefully, uh, you will find today that we took a little more time than just to kind of come uh, sleepy-eyed to have this conversation, but to really hopefully give you some good tools um, to help you understand this. And so, as Blake said, to kind of the larger group, some of you are in here because you go, man, I just want to be able to talk to friends that have gone through this and be able to answer their questions and, and know how to counsel them, and man, I just applaud you for that. Uh, because as you'll see, there are a lot of uh, folks out there who will say a lot of different things. Others of you are here because you personally are, um, you know, asking that question. You've gone through a divorce recently or or uh, uh, are starting to date someone after being divorced or maybe you're dating someone who is divorced uh, and so you're trying to figure out uh, this deal. So I don't know where everybody is, but I'm so thankful that you guys are here uh, and that you're engaging in this dialogue because, um, frankly, what I have found and just kind of thinking through this over the years, it's just that uh, a lot of people just kind of want to go, man, if I don't see it, if I don't hear it, then I don't have to mess with it, right? Uh, and uh, and so, um, you know, kind of easier to ask for forgiveness than permission type of attitude towards the conversation. Um, and uh, and I think what honors Christ is that we just look at his word and we take the time to really understand, man, how does this affect me? How does this apply to me? Uh, what should this do? You know, what should this matter? Uh, for where I'm going. And so that's why we're here today. So let me pray, and then we're just going to dive in. And like I said, feel free to raise your hand, ask a question at any time, and uh, we'll just see where the Lord takes us this morning, all right? Well, Father, thank you so much for today and just this opportunity to uh, talk about this topic. God, we thank you that you are passionate about this topic. Uh, God, as we'll see uh, today, that um, one of the things that you have given us um, to uh, bring honor and glory to you in, in really a most brilliant way is uh, this gift of marriage. And so, God, I just pray that you would um, help us now, Lord, just to open our ears and our hearts to what you would have to say to us. God, I pray for um, myself and for Richard as he shares here in a little bit, Lord, that you would just uh, allow us to speak only what you tell us to speak, God, what is consistent with your word, and, uh, and Lord, that we might just be um, good representatives of your grace and your mercy as well as your truth during this time. So, Lord, thank you uh, for uh, your presence here, and uh, we ask, God, that you would do a great work in our heart. In Christ's name, amen. Well, what I've given you today, rather than give you some uh, you know, snazzy handout and fill-in-the-blank deal, I just gave you my slides from today, so you can kind of follow along in there and take some notes as you see fit. And so... Um, 
so that's what you have in your hands. Along with the other thing I gave you is Watermark statement on divorce and remarriage. And so uh, obviously a lot of folks come here and they go, well, I want to know what Watermark has to say. I'm about to become a member or I already am a member. And so we'll kind of walk through that through the course of this morning and what we're going to do. We're going to uh, kind of break this up into three pieces. So this morning we're just going to talk about marriage for the first part. Uh, and then Richard McCauley, who uh, has served with me in divorce care really since the beginning uh, and is himself uh, a divorced uh, single dad, uh, is going to come up and share on divorce. And then I'll come back up and we'll talk about remarriage. And so... Um, so anyway, what, uh, what I wanted to start off with is just some class assumptions. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, we want to just come in here and just say immediately that God and his word are authoritative. God and his word are authoritative, that, that when we think about any topic uh, that, that we might go through in life, the first question really in our minds ought to be, well, what does God have to say about this? And so as we think about divorce and remarriage, we ought to be asking ourselves this question. Well, what does God's word have to say about it? The second thing is that his word, God and his word are superior. They're superior and sufficient for everything. That there's no other wisdom out there that we just go, well, you know what? That kind of trumps God's word here. Uh, and so there's a lot of self-help books out there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, talk shows out there that want to uh, talk about this topic and, and offer their wise counsel. But if it doesn't match up with God's word, then it's, it's lacking. It's insufficient. Okay? And so we just believe that God and his word are superior. And then finally, and sometimes most difficult to understand, especially given this topic, is that God and his word are loving. God and his word are loving. Again, sometimes we look at God's word and we go, really, God? I mean, you really say this about this topic? I mean, gosh, that just seems like it steals my joy. It steals my fun. It steals the, uh, you know, what I'd planned for my life and, and all this kind of stuff. And in the meantime, as Todd says, a lot of times, you know, God didn't come here to rip us off but to set us free. And there's just a ton of freedom, as I hope that you'll see, uh, even as we talk through this topic and even as we look at some of the more difficult things that I think God's word has to say about this. Uh, Voltaire is uh, uh, famous for saying, if God created us in his image, we have certainly returned the compliment. Um, which is just a way of saying that, that, frankly, what we tend to do with God's word is where we like it, where it resonates with us, and we just go, man, this is a great thing, then, man, we'll embrace that fully. We'll spend all of our quiet times in that little passage of Scripture and, uh, and just kind of get our, our love tank full off of that, right? Uh, and then other places where we see that God's word doesn't really line up with kind of our uh, lifestyle or our choosings or our choices, um, then we kind of go, well, man, maybe God didn't really mean that. And in the meantime, we are creating God in our image rather than seeing him as the three things that we just said, that he is authoritative, he's superior, and that he's loving. And so we just want to be, uh, as a church, we want to be uh, faithful to do that. That's why, frankly, why we're doing all the classes that we're doing today, those these first couple of slides we could use for all the classes today, and just that as we look at various topics, this is what we want to uh, be said about God, this is what we want to be said about us, that we are submitting ourselves to this God who is superior, authoritative, and loving, uh, and that we don't want to be guilty, as Voltaire said, of creating God in our image. Uh, he is the creator, and we want to bend our will to his rather than trying to bend his to ours. And so, uh, so that's where we just want to start off today. So uh, what we're going to do is just look at marriage and what, is the marriage, uh, what does the Bible have to say about marriage. We're going to look at the Old Testament 
and then at the New Testament. And so obviously we're not going to go through all the passages today, um, but hopefully what I've given you is just some of the, the key passages on various topics in the scripture so that you can look that up later if you wish to. But we're going to look at some of the, the more prominent and, and uh, more helpful passages from the scriptures. And really it all starts in Genesis. At the very beginning, when God created us, he created marriage. He created marriage. And Genesis 1, 27 through 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so from the very beginning, God created male, he created female. And so what we see in here that is uh, helpful is we just define marriage, uh, especially in our world today that wants to define marriage in various ways. When God defined marriage, he said, look, there is one male and there is one female. God created male and female. And he created us in his image and he created us for a purpose that we might together as male and female carry out his purposes in the world to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so Genesis 1 is very, very instructive for us. And then Genesis 2 says, So the Lord God, this is after he's created everything else, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so what we see here is God's perfect provision for marriage. This is God's ideal for marriage, right? This is before the fall, before sin corrupted anything. God placed this man, and he placed this woman in the garden, and he said, hey, look, you are for her, and she is for you. She is to be a helper for you, and you are to be the head, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. But uh, I'm going to allude to a book uh, today um, that uh, you'll see later in your notes, but there's a great book uh, by Andreas Kirstenberger, if you know German, you can do the umlaut in German there, but uh, it's called God, Marriage, and Family. It's a relatively new book, and I would say just a really, really thorough uh, discussion of really kind of all topics, so we're not even scratching the surface of all that this guy does, obviously, in his 400-page book here. But, um, but in there, he has this little chart that I thought I would give you that, that I found really helpful, where we see kind of God's creation ideal, because it kind of helps us to give uh, a definition for what marriage is. And, and so he talks about this biblical terminology, first of all, a man and his wife, and that the creation ideal was monogamy, that it was one man and one woman, Okay, and that there wasn't meant to be what we find right in, later in the Old Testament with guys like Solomon and David, who frankly were men after God's own heart, who said, hey, I'm going to take on multiple wives. And you see, frankly, a lot of the trouble that came out of that. And so you see in the Old Testament just kind of this consistent uh, distortion of God's perfect plan and his perfect ideal. And so the history of Israel was polygamy, multiple wives and, and all this kind of stuff. You see it right off the bat with God's uh, covenant uh, man Abraham, where Sarah says, hey, go take Hagar, you know, because we can't have a baby. Let's, let's do this, right? Uh, the other thing is that he says there in Genesis 2, 24, to hold fast. 
that in, in uh, the creation's ideal of marriage, there was meant to be durability and fidelity. That this was meant to last a lifetime. That only death should separate a couple. And that those two should be faithful to each other. And yet, as we look at the history of Israel, what do we see? Well, we see, again, we see Moses begin to make provision for divorce in, in Deuteronomy. We, we begin to see adultery playing itself out in multiple ways throughout the scriptures. We even see crazy things. If you look at uh, Noah and you look at uh, Lot and his daughters and you see the Moabites coming about because Lot slept with one of his daughters because she got him drunk. And you just go, man, what in the world is going on? And frankly, one of the, I think one of the things that you see as you just look at the Old Testament specifically and as you look at marriages, you see just the destructiveness of sin. You see this downward slope that is just, you know, it kind of starts off slow and then the next thing you know, and you're just in the pit. Okay? And then the other thing that uh, Kirstenberger points out is a man and his wife become one flesh. And that cr- the creation ideal was heterosexuality, fertility, and complementarity. We're going to get into some of that here in a little bit. But obviously, the history of Israel, I mean, right off the bat, this is all, you can really find all this stuff in the book of Genesis. Okay? So you don't have to get past the first 50 chapters before it all starts falling to pieces. I mean, this is really almost within the first 12 chapters of Genesis. You begin to see homosexuality playing itself out. You see sterility playing itself out. And you see this dilution of gender distinctions. In fact, if you look at the fall, which we're not going to take time to do, if you look at the fall, you see in the fall the complete inversion of God's creation ideal. That God said, hey, man is to be the head, woman is to be the helper of this leader, and then the two of them are to rule over creation. And in the fall, what happens? Creation tempts the woman who takes the apple, who gives it to the man, and it's all inverted and messed up. The fall happens and they're kicked out of the garden, right? And so right off the bat, this whole uh, shifting of gender roles and, and all that kind of stuff happens. And so what I gave you here is just some of the key passages in favor of monogamy. We're not going to look at those at all, but just so that you have those, if you want to refer to them, if someone were to say, well, you know, uh, if you've got some Mormon friends, for instance, who say, well, hey, I think this is okay, well, here you go. Um, You know, condemning adultery, which we don't have to go too far there to find that. Uh, You know, homosexuality, and obviously we have, uh, I have, I was a music major, which I guess puts you kind of in the line of uh, a lot of folks who struggle with homosexuality. And, and it was, uh, I had guys that were good friends of mine who would justify their behavior through the scriptures and say, no, 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 God, God doesn't condemn homosexuality. Well, here's some uh, text there. And again, I know that, um, oh, good, got a bird. Uh, <laughs> he wants to learn. There's a little blue jay sitting on the windowsill wanting to learn about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Go. Hang out with your wife. All right. Um, uh, but anyway, so the, the scriptures are really clear that homosexuality was not God's intended purpose for all kinds of reasons, which we don't have time to get into. Uh, one of the things I do want to take just a little bit of time to look at is this idea of complementarianism versus egalitarianism, which is just kind of some big theological words that I throw out to make myself look a lot smarter than I am. Uh, But, you know, God's purpose was this complementarity idea, which is the idea of equal worth for the sexes, but different roles for the sexes. And again, as we look at the scriptures, as we look at Genesis 2, and then again in Genesis 3, we see that God said it this way. And we'll see that again in the New Testament when we look at passages like Ephesians 5. 
that men were to be the leaders. They were to be the, the head of the home, and the women were to be their helpers and to carry out God's perfect plan for them, even as they followed their husbands. And this was God's ideal. Uh, I say here in a second, I might as well just open up the whole slide. Who am I kidding? Um, uh, you know, that this is an idea where it's, it's different role, but not different rank. Okay, so this isn't like the colonel, you know, talking to the captain. Okay, uh, these are two colonels that are coming together, but one of them is kind of the colonel in the army and one of them is colonel in the navy, let's say. Is there a colonel in the navy? I don't think there is. But anyway, uh, but, but that's more the idea that, that these are just, they're just different roles and they look different. Uh, our world wants to tell us, and frankly, there's a lot of churches out there who, will, who uh, uh, really purport this idea of egalitarianism, which is, hey, there, we have equal worth. And we have equal and interchangeable roles for the sexes. And so if a woman wants to be the leader of the household, let her be the leader of the household, right? Uh, if a woman wants to take the initiative in this deal, if the husband wants to, uh, you know, to, to, to play a, a more of a submissive role, then, then great, there's no, no problem with that. And yet again, as we see in the scriptures, that is not God's ideal. And every time that plays out, it ends up in disaster. It ends up in disaster. And so we are a church who holds highly to this complementary uh, uh, form of or this ideal for marriage. We believe that's what God's word teaches, not just because we think it's a good idea. Now, there are abuses of both of these, right? There are abuses of both of these, and there can be abuses of this complementary uh, idea. Uh, it becomes no longer complementary when a husband says, look, I am the head and you will do what I say regardless of what I say. That, that's not complementary. All right, that, that's dictatorial is what that is. And God's word does not, uh, does not allow for that. Uh, it doesn't want that. Um, it is no longer complimentary, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, for, for a husband to abuse his wife. Okay? And so this, uh, you know, chauvinism is not a form of complimentarianism. Okay? And anybody who says that it is, is lying to you and has not looked at God's word. And as we'll see here in a little bit. And so I want to be really clear in that. Uh, again, just some of the, the scriptures that you can see where God clearly gives equal worth to uh, men and women. Pretty much all those scriptures are, are kind of pointing to women as, as having uh, the, the same legal rights, as uh, God's protection for women because of some of the cultural uh, uh, rights that they had then. I think Richard will talk about that a little bit as we talk about divorce and why Moses came along and, and uh, gave allowances for divorce, as we'll see in, in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. And then, you know, and then just the different roles, whether it's in Genesis there, uh, obviously First Peter, uh, we, where Peter talks about that in First Peter 3. Uh, and so, again, it is a matter of role, not rank. And so we want to be really clear about that, okay? Uh, John Piper, one of the other books that I will uh, point you to is a, a book that he's just written called This Momentary Marriage. Uh, I want to give you fresh stuff. Uh, and so these are actually two brand new books that are out that, that I've kind of leaned on heavily, um, but are just really, really great um, books to, to look at. Uh, but in, in his book, he defines headship this way. He says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And as I hear Todd say, man, if I am a woman, man, I want someone to lead me this way, to care for me this way. And so again, it's not a, uh, it's, it's not a, uh, a chauvinistic view. 
is an idea of a husband taking responsibility for what a husband is called to take responsibility for. And then submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and to affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Okay? So I just think that's a really helpful definition there. Uh, there's a few more passages, uh, you know, just glimpses of the ideal in the Old Testament. Proverbs 31, uh, you'll hear, uh, frankly, uh, probably in a way I wish it wasn't, but kind of thrown around in bookstores and on bumper stickers. I'm a Proverbs 31 woman. Okay, well, that's fine and good, but be one. Don't just have a bumper sticker, okay? Um, so Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 gives you a, a, a great um, uh, example of what a, a wife should look like, and and frankly, not only that, uh, I think sometimes we can look at that and it's oh, it's just isn't that wonderful for women. But this is a husband lauding his wife, praising her, and going, man, what would I do without you? And so husbands, there's a ton of instruction for us in there too, men. And so Proverbs 31, Song of Solomon, obviously the whole book. Uh, you know, people will debate, well, it's just an uh, an analogy and you know an allegory for uh, Israel. Well, maybe, but uh, it is also a very, very beautiful picture of what God created marriage to be. And so Song of Solomon and then Proverbs 5, 15 through 20 are some other passages. So let's look at the New Testament specifically. Hey, let's look at what this creator of the universe says about marriage. Jesus himself, who is the word uh, in the beginning, as John 1 tells us, who was with God in the beginning and he created these things. And so we see that Jesus is there in that moment when marriage was created. And so in, in Matthew 19, we have some guys that come up to the creator of the universe and say, hey, what's marriage all about? Right? Uh, that's a good place to go. Of course, they didn't like his answer. But, um, but in Matthew 19, Jesus says, look, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, obviously, they're asking about divorce in this uh, situation. We'll, talk, we'll go on through that passage as the morning goes on. But just to look there at what Jesus' perfect and beautiful ideal was for marriage. That he went straight back to Genesis. And so as though Genesis wasn't authoritative enough, the creator of the universe quotes it and says, Hey, look, don't you remember that this is what I said from the very beginning? And then he goes on and he just kind of adds to it and says, look, so they're no longer two but one and what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so Jesus says, look, marriage is not a human institution. It's not this thing that you go down to a courthouse and a judge puts you together because if that's all that it is, then guess what? It's really easy to go back to that same judge a few months later, a few years later and say, hey, I don't think I want this anymore. And he goes, okay, well, here, let, let's take care of that. Jesus wanted uh, all of Israel to know. He wanted all of mankind and for the rest of time to understand that God created marriage. God is the one who put people together and that God alone could separate it. Uh, you, one of the things that I hear people say all the time is, well, I just married the wrong person. I just married the wrong person. And, and while you can certainly make the case that some poor choices were made on the front end, maybe, uh, you know, poor judgments in character and different things like that, I always look at them and I say, well, can I ask you a question? Did you marry that person? Well, yeah, I did. I married that person. Okay. Well, who is the sovereign king of the universe who orders all of our steps and allows us to make decisions? Well, that's God. Okay. So are you telling me that you don't believe that God, if he didn't want you to marry that person, could have not stopped you in your tracks. 
and said, no, 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 you're not going to marry that person? Or do you believe that God is sovereign in control and that he allowed you to make that decision? Again, given a lot of maybe the, the uh, failed wisdom as you considered that decision, but that he allowed you to make that decision. And now you are reaping some of the benefits for maybe some of your failed wisdom, but that does not necessarily preclude you from going, well, I just married the wrong person and I just didn't hear God right and you know, or God didn't speak clearly enough. Because frankly, then we kind of begin to push a lot of uh, the, the responsibility for that stuff onto God. I keep holding this cup of coffee like I'm going to drink it and I haven't taken one sip. Um, and so, you know, I, I really, you know, as I look at my own marriage and, and my wife and I, as I look at the decision, frankly, that, um, that we made to get married, we'll celebrate our 12th anniversary this year, which is great. I will celebrate my 32nd birthday about three days before that, so you do the math. I got married when I was 20. My wife was 19, um, and it was uh, probably the most foolish decision ever. I mean, really, at least in my life, when I look back on it. And yet God allowed me to do that, and God brought us through some really, really dark times in our marriage uh, to the point that at one point I looked at my wife and said, well, I'll take the boy, you keep the girl, and I'm going to go, uh, you know, go down and stay with my parents for a while. This is why I was in staff here at Watermark, by the way. Really, really dark times in my relationship with my wife. And certainly I could look and go, well, I just married the wrong person. We just don't you know, fit well together. I could have done that at that time and justified my deal. But as I began to look at God's word and obviously see what he says about divorce, and as I considered just this idea that he is sovereign, that he placed Brandy Novak in my life as an 18-year-old stupid kid so that I could fall in love with her, marry her, and that we could have a lifetime of intimacy with each other build a family together. and He placed me there for that purpose. And so what God has joined together, who am I to separate? God is the initiator of marriage from the beginning of time. It was his idea. So any you know, effort that we have to go, well, God, I think your idea is a little off. And what do you think about this? You know, it's like, this is not a whiteboard session, people. Okay. We don't get to brainstorm and go, okay, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. No, God in his superior and authoritative way, and out of his loving kindness said, hey, here's this gift. Use it well. Use it like it was meant to be. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so that's what Jesus said as he was approached about it. And then Ephesians 5 is the other passage that we look at uh, often as we consider this idea of marriage. And uh, and so I just want to read that, and then we'll just kind of look at um, a definition here in just a second. So in Ephesians 5, uh, beginning in verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, even so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. And so in this really, really rich passage, what we see is a couple of different things that that tell us about marriage. One is we see this complementary idea, right? 
And it starts with a command from Paul where he says, look, submit yourselves to who? One another. Okay? He doesn't start off with wives submit to your husbands. He starts off with submit to one another. Husbands, you're going to have to submit to your wives in certain things. It's called sacrifice and compromise and different things like that, right? And so it starts off with that command, and then it goes in and it says, but hey, look, wives, there's a, a specific way that we want you to submit to your husbands. Just as what? As the church submits to the authority of Christ, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, what John Piper says in his book, This Momentary Marriage, which I, I just love, is, you know, the, the whole concept is, look, your, your marriage to your spouse is momentary. Uh, we won't get into it, but uh, you do realize that there's no such thing as marriage in heaven. It says that Jesus said that, just in case you're wondering when you talk to the Sadducees. So there's no, uh, my wife and I will not be married in heaven, is what God's word says, Okay. It is my marriage to my wife is a, uh, a, a very, very dim reflection of this perfect marriage that will take place between me and Christ when I die or when he comes back for his bride. And so what, uh, what Paul is saying here is, hey, wives, look, I want you to submit to your husbands just like you would to the Lord. Because just like the husband is the head of the household, Christ is the head of the church. And so I could just say, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm an okay husband, uh, but I, I make no uh, dent in the beauty that is Christ. None whatsoever. The scriptures tell me I bring nothing but filthy rags to him, right? And yet my marriage is meant to portray this, this eternal and infinite beauty of Christ. And my role as a husband is meant to portray that. And my wife's response to me, ought to portray what my response ought to be to the person of Christ. And so this is this really dim reflection. But Paul says, look, if you want to know what you ought to aim for, don't aim to be better than the Joneses next door. Okay? You could probably pull that off and aim for this. Because that means there is a lifetime. There's a lifetime for you to continue to work out this thing called marriage. Uh, John Piper talks about the fact that he's written this book. This is his first book on marriage, and he's been married for 45 years, I think, 44 years, something like that. And he just goes, look, you know, I wish I could give you a book that says, you know, look, if over the first 10 years, you're going to work really hard, and, you know, at that 10-year mark, then you get to celebrate for like the next 50, you know, and it's going to be great and bliss, and it's just perfect. And he's like, look, I'm 44 years into this deal, and it is a beating. You know, I got to work at it every day. It's something I have to work out and make sure that, you know, uh, he was speaking at a conference recently where he's kind of unloaded. Look, if you think I'm perfect, just talk to my wife, you know, and, uh, and just kind of spilled his guts on some things that he struggles with as a husband, you know. And so the reality is, is that, uh, that, that we will not measure up to the standard of Ephesians 5 and what Jesus has said. There's just no way. But that ought to be our aim and our goal. That's why the book of Hosea makes a ton of sense. Hosea is one of those, those books, if you don't know the book of Hosea, this is where uh, Hosea is a prophet of God, and God tells him what? Go and marry a prostitute. Go, go marry her and remain faithful to her. And she's going to not, over and over and over again, not. But you keep going back. And in fact, she's going to go and she's going to be standing up on a, on a little you know, podium for sale. 
And I just want you to take whatever money you have. And by the way, prophets don't make a lot of coin. And I want you to go and I want you to buy her back. She's your wife. And in that way, I want you to portray the faithfulness of God to his bride. And all of a sudden we just go, well, gosh, I guess if, I guess if marriage is meant to portray who Christ is, maybe that makes sense. But if it's just to be better than the Joneses, it doesn't make any sense. And so wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the uh, wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And then husbands, where it really comes in is, hey, husbands, you remember this leadership role? Just in case you think it means chauvinism, is there anything chauvinistic about a guy who takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around himself, kneels down at the feet of these nasty disciples who've been trudging through the mud and, frankly, the, the feces of animals through the, the streets and says, hey, let me wash your feet. And there's nothing chauvinistic about that. And that's just one example of the way that Christ served and loved. And it's not the most brilliant one when we think about the cross. And so we just go, hey, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Knowing that, she would be like Gomer and Hosea and running after all sorts of other stuff. All sorts of other stuff. And Christ goes, I I died for that. I died for that. And so husbands, this is the way that we are called to lead. And so marriage in the New Testament is just serious, serious business. A few other key passages and some that we'll look at um, maybe a little bit later. But 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. uh, 1 Timothy 2, 15. And then 4, 1 through 4. And then 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 are some other passages that uh, just speak to what marriage is supposed to look like. Uh, The other thing which we don't have time to do but is really interesting to do is to go and to look at marriages in the Scriptures. Okay? And and so you see both the good and the bad of that. You know, so if you look at David, for instance, and some of his wives, you see some brilliant moments with David where he really carries out this, uh, this beautiful portrayal of what marriage should be. And leading his wife and loving her and sacrificing for her. And then, in, you know, the next moment he's chasing after, you know, his fourth wife and, you know, looking at Bathsheba on the roof and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so you see both kind of the good and the bad as you just examine marriages in the scriptures. And so, you know, again, I, Hosea and Gomer is a, a great example that we consistently point people to. Piper says it this way. He says, look, most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God and ultimately Marriage is the display of God. I, love, I, I wish I had that guy's gift just to simplify things and to say it. Like I, it takes me you know, four pages to say what he just said there in one sentence. But that's it. Marriage foundationally is the doing of God. And ultimately, it is the display of God. It's the display of God. And so if that's the mindset that we have going into marriage, and if that's the mindset that we have as we're in our marriage, and if that's the mindset that we have... Even as we consider divorce and all that stuff, we just go, okay, so my goal and my role here is not to make myself happy. It's to make sure that this thing serves me really well. My goal in this thing is to look at God and say, God, what is it, given my circumstances, what does it look like for me to be a faithful follower of yours today in the way that I love my spouse? You see, that's the ultimate question. Not, well, what do I do about this, you know, this woman who just continues to act this way or this guy that continues to betray me in this way? What do I do about that? that that's, the, that's the secondary question. If the first question, if the primary question is, what do I do, God, 
to be the most faithful follower of yours given the circumstances that I'm in, it changes everything. It changes everything. And so marriage is foundationally the doing of God. Therefore, it cannot be undone by man. And it is ultimately the display of God so that we see him for this beautiful, faithful, loving father, husband that he is and that he longs to be for us. And so as we at at Watermark have uh, just kind of worked to uh, give a definition of marriage, this is kind of our best attempt at it. And uh, you may not be able to see this really well on that other handout, but this is straight off of the uh, kind of the watermark statement of divorce and remarriage, um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage there. So we just say that marriage is not a human institution, but a divine one. So there it is. It is the doing of God. It's initiated by God at creation, and it's deemed good by him along with all of God's creation. We say that God's perfect plan for marriage is that it be a lifelong pursuit of intimacy between a man and a woman, and that it never be ended by anything but death. He desires that two people would not merely live together. Uh, I'll never forget the moment that my wife looked at me and said, I just feel like I'm your roommate in that really dark season in our marriage. I just feel like I'm your roommate. And I just go, man, that's not God's ideal. It's not just that two people would merely live together and tolerate each other, but that they would pursue oneness within their marriage relationship, being quote-unquote undivorced and yet ignoring the call to oneness, mutual submission, and love is a violation of his intention for marriage just as well as divorce is. Okay, we don't necessarily see divorce as uh, a far worse sin than someone who's merely tolerating their spouse in marriage. Frankly, I see it on the same level. I see it on the same level that God doesn't want either one of those. That's not God's perfect plan. And so a husband ought to be pursuing his wife. A wife ought to be pursuing her husband. They ought to be aiming for oneness and intimacy with one another. Okay. And then, so that's really our kind of marriage defined. And then really we just say the rest of that little statement there is what I would call the purpose of marriage. Is that mer- marriage is an illustration of the covenant relationship between God and believers. Where, God is the, or where Christ is the head of his bride, the church husbands are to follow his example and his sacrificial love for his bride. Where the church is to lovingly submit to the authority of Christ as the head, wives are to lovingly submit to the authority of their husband, which has been established by God. All this comes from Ephesians 5. So the purpose of marriage is to give glory and honor to God, to give glory and honor to Christ. One more quote from Piper. I like him, by the way, just in case you didn't know. He asked his wife, he said, Hey, look, Noel, he said, Is there anything that I can can tell these people, that, that I should continue to tell these people as I write this book. And this was her response. She said, you cannot say too often that marriage is a model of Christ in the church. I think she's right, and there are at least three reasons, and I love his reasons. It says, number one, this lifts marriage out of the sordid sitcom images and gives it to the magnificent meaning God meant it to have. And I laid in bed last night with my wife and watched uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. I think that show is hysterical. But you want to talk about sordid sitcom view of what marriage is? I mean, that guy is a bozo of all bozos, right? Wouldn't have the first clue how to lead his wife. And we think it's funny. We think it's funny. We laugh at it. I did. Last night, I laughed at it. And yet, if we really think about it, we just go, man, that is that's so sad. It's a distortion of God's perfection and his beauty. And that we put it up there and laugh at it rather than grieving over what marriage has become. 
Number two, he says, this gives marriage a solid basis in grace since Christ obtained and sustained his bride by grace alone. Man, if your marriage, if your relationship with anybody, frankly, is not marked by grace, it will not last. It will not last. And yet as we look at, if we consider Ephesians 5, and we look at as Christ loved the church, where the basis of it was grace and the sustaining uh, uh, sufficiency of it is his grace. And then number three, this shows that the husband's headship and the wife's submission are crucial and crucified. That is, they are woven into the very meaning of marriage as a display of Christ and the church. But they are both defined by Christ's self-denying work on the cross so that their pride and slavishness are canceled. Great words. Great words there. So as we think about marriage, we think about it being something that is created by God. God ordained and that God alone sustains and that God alone is able to break through death. And we see it as this display of the supreme beauty of Christ and the glory of our God. And so if that's the case, then that should change everything about the way that we view marriage. Okay? And as we go in and talking about these other topics of divorce and remarriage and how it will color that. So uh, a couple of resources there. One is this uh, Andreas Kirstenberger book, God, Marriage, and Family. Uh, it's just a great book. I've got a copy here if you want to uh, thumb through it as we take a break here in a second. And then the other one is uh, Piper's This Momentary Marriage. Uh, one of the things I love about John Piper is all of his stuff is free online, most of his books. And so you can go to desiringgod.org and pull up a PDF copy of that book and, and read it. I have not paid one dime for what I've read or the quotes that I've given you this morning. Uh, so I'm like, well, John, if you don't want me to pay for it, I won't. So, um, so anyway, so, and if you want to, obviously, if you want to order a copy of the book, you can do it there at desiringgod.org. Um, but just really, really uh, rich stuff there.